when, when something was really amazing back before they created sliced bread, do you ever wonder what they would have said? Did they just say this is the greatest thing since bread? Um, that and other mysteries are going to be cleared up for you this morning. Uh, because I want to talk to you briefly about a man by the name of Otto Rowader. He was, uh, uh, he was a tinkerer. He liked to design things. He liked to uh, make things. And in the early 1900s, he heard a familiar complaint. And the complaint was that for many people, cutting bread, uh, slicing it was uh, tedious, it was time-consuming, and sometimes it was dangerous. And so he became absorbed in this idea of creating pre-sliced bread that bakers and bakeries would be able to sell and, and make available to people. He was so consumed by this, this vision of creating pre-sliced bread that although he was a young man, had three uh, jewelry stores, he sold them and uh, went into this full-time. He developed hundreds uh, and hundreds of uh, blueprints and designs and ideas. And finally, after so much uh, time invested, had his first working prototype. Unfortunately, it was at that point that the warehouse that he was uh, uh, renting to, uh, to carry on his operations and to do his, his uh, development uh, caught fire and all of the blueprints were destroyed his prototype was destroyed, and financially he took such a hit that for the next decade he would find himself rebuilding capital and uh, rebuilding his, his designs and his plans, and eventually uh, came up with, a, uh, again, a, a decade later, a, another prototype. The problem was at that point, he couldn't find anyone that was interested in it. It was five feet long, three feet wide, and for many people it just seemed like too big. Like, wh where are we going to put that in the bakery? And uh, does it, is, is this really um, necessary? Eventually, a friend invested in it, and on July 7th, 1928, the first loaf of commercially sliced bread was made available to the public. It was at that point that a newspaper article had the headline, uh, that sliced bread was, in fact, the greatest forward step in the baking industry since bread was wrapped. So that was, that, that, that uh, it, it used to be the that, uh, greatest thing since wrapped bread. Now it's the greatest thing. And it was actually that phrase that got uh, transformed and reused. And now we all say it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. What I want to ask you this morning, though, is whether his work was worthwhile. Was, was it worth it? I talked about some of the, the, the problems that he had and the fire and the destroyed and the setbacks. Was his work worthwhile? And as you're thinking your answer to that question, I want you to tell me why you think it was worthwhile, if you think it was. So was his work worthwhile because he was successful? Was his work worthwhile because he went on to sell his product and, and became uh, the sliced bread was so wonderful that they came out with a new package and a new company called Wonder Bread. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Was that why his work was worthwhile? Was his work worthwhile because he made a lot of money from his patent and his, and his machine? Was it worthwhile because he's so famous we're still talking about him? Or maybe some of you are thinking, I don't think his, his work was all that worthwhile because... 
we could still eat bread, whether we slice it or they slice it. You know, maybe he, he wasted a lot of time developing something that we don't really need. Um, or, or maybe you're kind of have a spiritual take on it and you say, like, unless you lead someone to Christ or at least quote some Bible verses, I don't think that uh, pouring all that time and energy into something is all that important. I'm not sure it's all that worthwhile. Obviously, this morning is not about auto auto road row eater, but it's about your work as well. Is your work worthwhile? Does it mean anything? Is it of any value in the grand scheme of things? And if so, why or why not? Today we begin a series of work uh, on work entitled Let God Transform Your Career. Uh, and we're trying to understand today how God can give our work purpose. Whether it's paid work or unpaid work, how do we understand uh, our, our work and if it can have value? And how does God see it? And how does he bring purpose and, and meaning to it? And to do that, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to where God starts and the Bible starts. Uh, he starts us off in the book of Genesis. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me there now. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of God. And what this passage teaches us, I believe, and we'll get into it, is that the first way that you can make your, worthwhile, your work worthwhile is to work to enjoy a piece of paradise. To learn to see the blessing and privilege of work as God designed it in paradise. We work to enjoy paradise. A piece of paradise. Now, if even saying the word work and paradise in the same sentence causes you to groan a little bit, that's okay because I think when the Israelites first heard these words that uh, Moses penned for us in the book of Genesis, they probably groaned too. They had not understood anything of uh, work as blessing. They only knew work as slavery. As we think of the Israelites listening to these words, we remember that they were people who had only experienced work as slavery. And it's not just the slavery of, wow, my boss is a real slave driver, like real slavery. They experienced um, probably some of the worst conditions that, that can be known. Uh, we get a picture of that in Exodus chapter 1. Verses three, 13 and 14 describes how hard their jobs really were. It says, so they ruthlessly, referring to the Egyptian taskmasters, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, mortar, brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So that was all that they knew. They understood was work, work for them, up until reading this, these words in Genesis, work for them was what you had to do to avoid being beaten to death by 
the person that had been placed over you. That, and that view of work wasn't uncommon in the ancient world. There is a, uh, an, another account of creation. It's, it's a myth. It's a, it's a fable from, uh, from Babylon, but it's 3,500 years old called the Enuma Elish. And it gives you a picture of what ancient peoples uh, at this time might have, uh, might have thought. In this uh, Enuma Elish, there's, a, uh, a, there's, there's two sets of, of gods that are battling it out with each other. And the head of one called Marduk uh, rises as a king, and he's victorious over the others. And he decides to create the earth, and he creates it and tries to get the other gods to come and live on the earth, only they don't want any part of it because they think that life on earth would involve too much work. They're kind of more set out for condo living. The idea of managing a garden and, and all the things that might be involved, eh, just that seems like, like too burdensome. So Marduk comes up with a great idea, and he says this, I will produce a lowly primitive creature, man shall be his name, and to him shall be charged the work, so that the gods may rest. And this just gives us, not to suggest that this is true or anything, but just just how people thought at the time, they had this picture that work was what you did if you didn't have any other options. That really, if you had enough money or power or authority, what you really wanted to be doing is laying in a hammock. That, uh, that, that, was, that was really to be preferred. And what strikes me is that although this was written 3,500 years ago, people's attitudes towards work haven't really changed all that much. Work is still seen as a drudgery to be avoided if at all, if at all possible. Work is still seen as something that people without the money or the authority or the power to, to have other options have to do. But if you possibly could come up with uh, some way to get out of it and enjoy a life of leisure, then that's surely the path that you would want to take. With that understanding, the teachings about work contained here in Genesis would have blown the minds of the Israelites totally new understanding. Here they see the God of the Bible not designing man so that they can get, he can get out of work, but the God of the Bible is creating and forming. He's naming his, his creation. He's evaluating his work. There's design, creativity, and even satisfaction as uh, God engages in it. In fact, God likes work so much that he puts in a six-day week. Like, he, it's not, he, he's not just uh, putting in the bare minimum. Like, you, you can see this, this uh, commitment on his part. And he doesn't work for any of the reasons that we tend to work. God has all of his needs met. He has the riches of the universe at his disposal. He doesn't have any of our motivations to work. And yet he does it because there's blessing in work. There's honor in work. There is satisfaction and accomplishment in work. In most modern thinking, that idea of work just isn't there. We see work as a necessary evil, a means to an end. We work to get money and pay the bills. We work for the weekend, right? We, we work for bigger toys. We work for power and and, and honor and status and, and a sense of, 
uh, recognition or power or influence. But we learn from God that work was never intended to be any of those things. That that's not how, why God works and that's not how we are called to work. So as the Israelites heard these words from Moses in, in Genesis chapter 1, as they understood God's picture for work, they'd be amazed that God, God works. They'd also be amazed in verse 28 that God could speak of command, God's command to work in the same breath that he spoke of his blessing of humanity. It says, and God blessed them, and then he asked them to work. They'd also be amazed that only humans in this, in this uh, chapter are given a job description to join God in his work. Notice in verse 22, animals are blessed and they're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Anybody heard be fruitful and multiply anywhere else in, in, uh, the, in the opening chapters of Genesis? Yeah, it's the exact same thing that, that God commands humanity, Right? He blesses them, commands them to be fruitful and multiply. But with animals, he stops there. With humanity, he adds the invitation to partner with him in work. And so you learn there that a life given over just to recreation and procreation is what God has assigned to animals. God calls humanity to something higher, to something greater. And so I wonder if you know the blessing of work. Do you know the blessing of work or just the slavery of work? Do you have the, the image of work that Babylonians uh, that uh, read the Enuma Elish uh, believed? Or do you have a vision of work that God has given us to in his word? Helen Prejean is a woman whose experience with death row inmates was uh, depicted in the movie Dead Man Walking. She saw firsthand how much work is a part of the human condition because she went and spend, spent time with the people that we want to lock up and never see again. She spent time with death row inmates and she described her experience in this way. In creating, we imitate God. To be a creator is part of what it means to be a human being. I met a guy on death row in Arizona who had nothing. So he would unravel his socks and weave little necklaces with crosses out of the threads. Then she said, I, the first time I visited another death row inmate, he gave me a picture frame he'd made out of gum wrapper foils. These men were locked in a small cell 23 out of 24 hours a day. They had absolutely nothing, and yet still they were reaching out, she says, to create something of beauty and worth. The capacity and the desire to work is part of the human condition. It's part of how we were designed. And so when we have the energy and the opportunity to work and we, we avoid it or run from it or choose comfort, leisure, and entertainment instead, we lose something of what it means to be human. So don't just live for the weekend or live for your leisure. leisure. Work to enjoy a piece of paradise. It's part of the privilege of being human. So the first way we make our work worthwhile is to work to enjoy a piece of paradise. The second way is to work as a representative of God. We are called in this passage to be ambassadors for God, to be his representatives in uh, the workplaces that God has assigned to us. We work as a representative of God. 
And when we're invited to this task of work in verse 26, I want you to see how it stresses something in, in the text here. It talks repeatedly about the image of God. Verse 26 says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27 then says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Whenever God repeats something again and again and again, he does it for a reason, to make it stand out. It's his way of putting a highlight or an underline under, under a, a statement or a phrase. So I want you to see that re repetition of creation in God's image and then what follows those statements of us being created in, our, in his image are the commands to work. So verse 26, let's make man in our own, own image. Verse, second half of verse 26 is a command to work. Then verse 27, again, created in his image, in the image of God he created him. And then in verse 28, the command to work. So working is related to our creation in God's image. It's a part of how he's created us. This language of the image of God is not very familiar language to us. It would have been very familiar language to the Israelites who first heard it. Because ancient kings would often present themselves as the image bearers of God. They would be the image of God before mere mortals. So, for instance, uh, they would have heard Pharaoh presenting himself as a representative of the gods. One who's in whose image had been stamped on him by the gods. And yet, whenever ancient kings used this language of image of God, it was to elevate them above common folk. It was to set them above as special and honored and privileged compared to mere mortals. Now you have these former slaves reading this word from God that they had received the image of God that it wasn't just Pharaoh or some king, they would realize we have been given that privilege. We have received the stamp of, uh, of God upon us. And so they would see their lives in different ways. They would see themselves as royal ambassadors of the God who had created them. And it would change how they would see their role in the world. So when we see this word, the image of God, we recognize we have been created like God in that we have creative tendencies. We have a capacity for intelligence and design and industry that sets us apart from the animals. Again, the animals, the animals will work. What they're doing, though, is they're working for their next meal or they're saving up for the winter when they won't have enough nuts to make it through. Many people don't have any higher view of work than that. That's not God's view of work, and that's not his his calling to humanity. We have been called to a greater view of work. Andre Crouch puts uh, this distinction between humanity and the uh, animal world in, in this idea of image of God like this. There is simply no other creature in the world that harbors the ambition to be like God except for image bearers. Next time you're at the zoo, try approaching an elephant, a cheetah, or a crocodile and whispering in their ear, you shall be like God. <laughs> he says, not only will they regard you with indifference or possibly faint stirrings of hunger, you will have a hard time not laughing. For all their grandeur and power, the world's creatures just do not give the faintest evidence of wanting 
any, wanting to become anything more than a well-fed version of themselves. That's, that is the calling of, of, of the animal world. We have been set apart for something else. I want you to see how Psalm 104 describes our partnership with God and, what it, and how we can understand something about work from it. Psalm 104, I want you to look carefully at the words as I read from verse 13 to 15. It says this, From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. You see what it's saying here? It says that God waters the mountains and causes the grass to grow, but then humanity enters into this partnership with him in cultivating those plants and in helping them to produce things like food and wine and oil and bread. But it's saying more than that. If you, see, if you take a look at verse 15, do you see that it's actually saying that God designed us and partners with us in the development of skincare products, right? That's what it's saying. Working, working as God's rep- representatives means making things more full and beautiful. When you were in the Garden of Eden, it was pretty good. But if you got, if you got a dry skin, you were out of luck. God had intended that through his partnership with humanity that eventually olive trees would be cultivated. And eventually those olive trees would lead to olive olive fruit and that olive fruit would lead to olive oil and that olive oil would eventually be used uh, to treat the skin and to make people's face shine in a way that they didn't even shine in paradise. If God has created us with that kind of partnership, with that kind of purpose to design skincare products, surely he continues that work in designing MRI machines and uh, uh, internet modems and all kinds of devices that we need, including inventions to make sliced bread. The, The process continues, God inviting us to join him in his work of designing and creating and forming and blessing this world in the many ways that we can see him do that. And if that is a really a partnership that we, have, that we have undertaken, a partnership with God in all that we do, then it can't just be about the product. It can't just be about the bottom line. God has to care how we do what we do. The, the way that we do what we do has to matter to God because otherwise none of it would bring glory to him. We need to stop for a moment and say, what is work? And John Stott gives us, I think, a a very helpful definition. He says, Work is the expenditure of energy in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Is that how you see work? That's almost never how we talk about work, right? We talk about work to get something, to pay bills. We talk about the slavery of work. John Stott helps us to see what scripture proclaims is a blessing of work. 
he helps us to see that what Scripture invites us to see in our work is if God gives us energy, if he has given us ability, talent, passion, or anything, that we're to take that, expend some energy, get off the couch, and then we look for, who can I serve? How can I benefit, how can I benefit society? How can I glorify God? And then, whether I'm paid or not, whether anybody notices or not, whether I get written up with special accolades or, or, or noticed for my accomplishments, that if I take what God has given me, expend the energy to serve people, benefit communi- the community, glorify God, he says that that will result in fulfillment to the worker. That, that is God's design for our blessing and work. So we said we can make our work worthwhile when we work to enjoy a piece of paradise. We, we see the blessing of work. We can make our work, work worthwhile as we work as representatives of God, as we bring the fullness of the image of God to bear on all that we do. But finally, the passage teaches that we can make our work worthwhile when we work to seek the potential of God's creation. Because as we look at this passage, we realize that the Garden of Eden, although we tend to think of it as the ultimate and the finishing work of God's creation, it was actually just a fixer-upper. It was actually just the start of what God had intended for this world. And I want to see that. Uh, Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I tend to look at the Garden of Eden as the ultimate, as the end, the goal, the finished work. But this passage won't let me come to that conclusion. This verse reminds me that it was just a start. First of all, you see the command to fill the earth. Eden was just the beginning. They would need more people. More people would need more organization. They would need more processes. They would need more complexity if, if those people were going to work, work in this world without bumping into each other and, and, and uh, reduplicating their efforts. Then the command to subdue the earth, which many people today see as proud and self-righteous, us putting ourselves over the animal world, Well, this verse says that God did that, not so that we would abuse the the creation that he has given to us, but that we would glorify him, that we would lead the creation that he put under our care and make it more productive, make it more God-glorifying. Plants would need to be cultivated. Irrigation systems would need to be developed. Towns and cities would need to be planned. And yes, bread slicers would need to be invented all part of God's design, all part of his purposes. This verse also shows me that there are no unspiritual jobs. A pastor is no more spiritual, not doing any more spiritual work in that sense than a farmer or a banker. If, anything, if anyone's going to pull rank here based on scripture, it's going to be the farmer, right? The, the, the original commandment was for gardeners. All work pursued in the image of God for the glory of God becomes God's work. 
most of you, if you were to think, if you were to see a promising young Christian this morning, and you were to go up to them, and they were, they were thinking about various career paths and thinking, how could I most glorify God? Most of you would not recommend a career path as a car, car salesperson. And that would, maybe it would, but it, uh, like many potential car, uh, uh, job opportunities, that probably wouldn't be the first thing that came to your mind is the most glor- way of glorifying God. Tim Keller tells the story of a Christian who ran a number of car dealerships. And, and in his car dealerships, the salespeople on the floor had a lot of latitude in how they made their sales, uh, how they set their prices, and the kind of uh, uh, negotiation that took place on, on the price. And at a certain point, he became curious and maybe a little concerned, and he decided to do a demographic study of how the sales were actually going down. As he did that study, what he found was that when women, and particularly non-white women, were paired up with older white salesmen that he, he employed, that they, they were paying inordinately uh, higher prices than, their, than his other customers. And he realized they were being ripped off, and they were being ripped off under his watch. He realized that he needed to do something about it. And so what he did was take away the freedom from his salespeople to negotiate prices because as he was doing so, he recognized complete injustice taking place in in his car dealership. So took away the the bargaining power of the salespeople and went with a fixed price. It had almost no wiggle room in terms of negotiation with customers. He took a hit as a result. He took a hit to his profit margin. And people, uh, in fact, uh, Tim Keller approached him and said, so what's, what's the angle here? He said, do you, make it, do you make up your loss and profit margin with higher employee satisfaction, with better public relations, with employees saying, wow, I, I'm really proud to be a part of a company that does this kind of thing. Is that, the, is that what you're doing? And his only response was, I really don't care. It might be, and, but frankly, I'm not even going to investigate to see whether that's taking place or whether, whether the opposite's taking place. It was the right thing to do, and so I knew I had to do it. Don't you wish that there were more Christian car salespeople like that? Don't you wish that there were more Christians like that serving as plumbers and personal support workers? Don't you wish that there were more Christians like that, serving as bank lenders and human resource officers. There is no spiritual work. There is no unspiritual work, that is, if it is pursued to God's glory in service of people as his representative. All work can come under God's God's hand and bring God's blessing. As long as God has given you strength, he's given you something. And you take what that something that he has given you, you expend energy, and you ask the question, who can I serve? How can I benefit this community? And how can I glorify God? Let's bring those questions before, before him as we ask his help in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
We pray for your help because often our work doesn't feel like paradise. We pray that you'd help us to see the blessing, to believe the blessing, and to see the great privilege of our work. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to approach our work the way you approach your work and show us how we can be better representatives of you in our jobs. We want to be your ambassadors. So give us eyes to see how we can do that and the courage to make a difference. Help us this morning, Father, to take whatever gifts, abilities, strengths that you've given to us and use them to serve people. For we long to honor you and make a difference in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.